Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real world data. everyone. My name is Zoe Lee, and I'm today's host. In this episode, I am excited to have Dr. Amy Abernathy, Principal Deputy Commissioner and Acting CIO of the FDA, and Mike Doyle, CEO of CODA. Both of you, thank you so much for joining me today. It's a delight to be here. Thanks for having us. You know, it's been a surreal few months in healthcare, to say the least. Um, 2020 has not been shy in serving up challenges, and the FDA has been central in addressing them. So firstly, Amy, just how are you? Thank you for asking. I I think we should say how are all of we, including all the listeners to the podcast. I think, at least for me, I am some combination of tired, a little bored at times, and ultimately ready for all this to be over. I'm also fairly hopeful about the things that we've learned in the middle of this pandemic and what that's going to teach us about the future. Yeah, I think all of us are, you know, feeling feeling kind of similar sentiments around that. And I think the the hopefulness has been really great. You know, I think Throughout this period, we've seen a number of healthcare organizations come together um, to solve the pandemic. And there's been a lot of collaboration between providers and drug manufacturers, academia, and of course, regulatory bodies. So how has the FDA been involved in these collaborations? And what is the role of the FDA as a participant and as a leader in this work? So there's so many different levels. I'm going to try and and, and connect a few different uh, threads of, of thought. So first of all, there certainly has been a whole of government response, but I would really call it a a whole of healthcare and whole of life sciences response to COVID-19. And as FDA, we play a role as a regulator, as a thought leader, and as a partner within the context of all that. We have, you know, certain specific tasks. So as FDA, within the context of our responsibility to protect and promote public health, we need to think about a number of aspects in this response. So we are involved in the approval as well as in the monitoring of diagnostics, in drug treatments, in biologic treatments, as well as we're involved in thinking about the development of potential approval of a vaccine. But I'd also like to say that it doesn't stop there, right? So we're the FDA. So our food supply is of concern for the FDA. And so we're very involved in thinking about the supply chain for food and how do we make sure that we are continuing to monitor for foodborne illness and other concerns. Also, when you think about it, this is a time when we're worried about whether or not our pets can get COVID-19 and whether or not there's issues within the veterinary space related to COVID-19. And so FDA's efforts on the veterinary side are also relevant. So I would say like FDA's role is an, as an actor in all of the efforts, as well as a specific role as it relates to protecting and promoting public health and regulating a large number of products 
they're directly related to COVID-19. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it spans so much and it touches so many aspects of of our lives. I know one small way in which CODA has been working with the FDA is through the through the evidence accelerator. Mike, do you want to share a bit about what we've done in that collaboration? Yeah. So first of all, I want to I want to thank a- Amy for her leadership and pulling together a, a number of uh, interested parties who have come together to support. Dr. Abernethy's efforts with the FDA, as well as other regulatory bodies, as well as humanity. And, and it's been, to me, it's been a, a just a, a bit of a silver lining in a, in a otherwise very awful time. But I, but I will say I've been proud of the effort of the, the private sector in joining with the public sector to do greater good. And, you know, one of the things that CODA has done in a small way is stepped up our uh, analytics capabilities and surveillance capabilities under um, the leadership of Friends of Cancer Research, the Reagan Udall Foundation, the Accelerator, and the FDA to work hand in glove to really look at early evidence to, to ascertain whether or not some of the experimental uh, treatments and drugs we're using in the field were going to be of value. And and one of the things we looked on very early was the the question of hydroxychloroquine and whether or not that was going to be effective early in the discovery phase. And we what we did is we used real world evidence to actually look at about three thousand records with our partners Hackensack Meridian Healthcare to try to answer that question. And as you know, there was a lot of different evidence to say it might be effective, it might not be effective, but there wasn't the type of rigor and the type of study that we were able to do with our partners that allowed all of us to take a look at in a a very objective manner, whether or not there was gonna be some benefit from the drug. And of course we found that that there wasn't. Uh, In fact, it could be hurtful. So I I think the the place of real world uh, evidence, real world data is here to stay. I know the FDA has been a big supporter of that. And if we can just use that for surveillance purposes early on to give ourselves an informed opinion and an objective opinion about whether or not this is going to work or potentially help, I think that goes a long way. Absolutely. And I think the FDA has been a big proponent of using real-world data in, in recent years, especially. What are some of the questions that you're trying to answer with real-world data in this case? And especially, you know, how might they be different from a question that you might use a more traditional clinical trial to explore? Well, I'm going to start by backing up a couple of steps, um, just to make sure that we level set on what real-world data are and how these pieces fit together with respect to COVID-19. And and then talk about you know, what are some of the priority areas. Practically speaking, as I think about real-world data and real-world evidence, real-world data are data sets that are collected outside of the traditional clinical trial. These might be electronic health record data, claims data, maybe biosensor data, such as um, what might come from the accelerometer in a watch. This is also information like patient-reported outcomes. Real-world data can be retrospective, so data that already existed in some system somewhere and may be getting cleaned up and ready for use, or it may be prospective, such as pragmatic clinical trials where patients are randomized in highly generalizable settings to collect um, real-world data. And importantly, real data can help us understand the story of a disease. It can help us prioritize treatments that might work. It can help us understand and put those treatments into context. So that's the, the general backdrop of real-world real evidence. And as FDA, we've been exploring 
the role of real world evidence in a number of different ways. We have recognized that the data need to be fit for the purpose at hand. There need to be the right kinds of analyses, and we need to understand what contexts or use cases can real world data be put to use. And that's been something that we've really focused on a lot for the last couple of years, partly compelled by the 21st Century Cures Act. Fast forward to the story of COVID-19. Suddenly we have more questions in front of us than we can possibly answer in such a short period of time. And so practically speaking, while I think we'd all love to see clinical trials help us answer every one of those questions in a really scientifically precise way, that's just not the practical reality. And we need to figure out how do we draw on the totality of the information around us to make judicious decisions. At FDA, we've been thinking hard about the role of real world data and real world evidence in solving the complex nut that is COVID-19. And the evidence accelerator that Mike alluded to is one way that we've been going after that. And I'll come back to the evidence accelerator in a few minutes if you're curious more. But practically speaking, as I thought through where does the story of real world data fall in the context of COVID-19, what kinds of questions can it help us answer? Those questions fall into some critical categories. First, real data can help us understand what is the story of COVID-19 and what do we know about this disease? We'll call that the natural history. Real world evidence can help us understand what treatments are people receiving? Treatment pattern information. That treatment pattern information can help us do things like plan for medical product supply chains or drug shortages or PPE shortages. That treatment pattern information can help us understand potential information around treatment impact, such as safety or effectiveness. What we know about drug treatments can then also be translated to the same kind of thinking about the development of treatment information, for example, for biologics like convalescent plasma and how for patients who are receiving convalescent plasma do we understand that they're performing compared to other COVID-19 patients. It also can help us understand, for example, how do diagnostic tests like PCR and serology perform in the real world and also how do patients develop immunity across populations. And then certainly there are questions that maybe real-world data can help us answer as it relates to vaccines as vaccines start to roll out. There's lots of places where the role of real-world data comes in. The challenge is what are the right data sets? How do we analyze these data sets? How quickly can we do this work? And how can we reliably do this work? And so that's been a key area of focus. The last thing I'll come back to then is the evidence accelerator. So at FDA, we've had a long history of thinking about and working with real-world data and real-world evidence. And examples of that include our Sentinel program, which has been in our drug center, an effort to try and continue to monitor drugs across time after they've been approved and look for safety signals. But we realize that we need to supplement or add on to our current robo data and robot evidence activities with new data sets and new capabilities. And so that's what the evidence accelerator allows us to do is to bring together a large community of data holders and analytic teams beyond the groups that we've historically worked with in order to figure out who can answer what questions and with what speed and how are we going to do it. The evidence accelerator is managed by Reagan Udall Foundation and Forensic Cancer Research the congressionally mandated mechanism that sits next to FDA. And as FDA, then we can kind of really watch what's happening and continue to be part of that community, provide technical advice, 
while making sure that all the different kinds of voices can be brought to the table. Because as I highlighted, there's a long list of questions to go after. Absolutely, there are. You know, you mentioned um, speed. And I know that, you know, speed is something that has often been tagged with real world data and real world evidence as something that, you know, with real data, we can uh, decrease the time to insight and it can help us achieve that agility, which is really important in medicine. Um, However, we also don't want to sacrifice, you know, scientific rigor for the purpose of speed. And so how do we maintain the agility in data collection and data curation um, while ensuring that we're also being compliant and still incredibly robust in our analysis? Boy, oh boy, is this a really important question. So first of all, we, we need deliberate agility, right? So we need to acknowledge that we have to work fast, but we can't work sloppy, right? One of the ways to achieve some of that agility and speed is to ask the core question, who's ready to go right now? So one of the things that we did in the Evidence Accelerator was we said, which data holders can start to address questions in the next two weeks, three to 12 weeks and 12 weeks plus, because we acknowledge that it would be great to do prospective longitudinal clinical trials for everything, but we need to start answering some questions right now. So we would like to think about what data sets are already ready to go. So that was one way we started to address agility and speed. We also said, but we also need to do that in a thoughtful, high quality way. So what do we know about the quality of the underlying data sets and the work that's done? And so understanding, for example, information such as prior experience that different data holders and data groups have with data curation, creating high quality data sets and answering certain kinds of questions helps to really understand who can do what. So that's sort of another aspect is really understanding prior experience. Also thinking about how do we document critical issues as it relates to quality. So for example, data completeness and information around availability and reliability of endpoints. And so those are ways that we, we, we go after quality while also being efficient and going to data sets that already exist. Another way that we think about achieving agility is acknowledging that if we're going to work fast, we should make sure that we're seeing the same result over and over again. And we see convergence of results because just doing one study may get you to an erroneous result. And that would be a potential problem if we made a decision on that erroneous result. So replication becomes another way of solving for the need for agility. Finally, I think we should all acknowledge that the story is changing. So what we may find in the first pass at trying to get to the answer to the question at hand may need to be adjusted as we learn more. And an example of that is what have been what you've seen in our serology tests and the emergency use authorizations around the serology tests, where as we've learned about the performance of serology tests, we've needed to adjust the EUAs and sometimes even take things off of the market as we realize how the tests are performing and also where there are problems. And so another part of agility is acknowledging that there needs to be course correction. Absolutely. And I think along with acknowledging that occasional course correction and really building on what we're learning um, is also an aspect of transparency, 
as well. I think it's really important, right, for the ultimate consumers of any of this research, which would be patients, to feel that trust and have that transparency. And we recently saw two COVID-19 studies based on real-world data be retracted from high-profile medical journals due to a lack of transparency into the data source. And so how do we establish more transparency on this to help everyone understand and build trust in these kinds of data sources and research? So first of all, we have to have ruthless transparency. We need to make sure that that commitment is something that we hold each other accountable to. Because as we're seeing, this is something that quickly erodes trust, right? When there isn't the transparency needed. The ways that we can move towards transparency is by having a shared mechanism to be able to understand what each group did. By also saying, here's what I did, why don't you try it out, right? So essentially, again, I go back to that issue of replication of findings. And when you try and replicate or reproduce something, not only do you look to see, do you get to convergence of findings, but did it make sense what that group was doing, right? So, so being able to not only share and say, here's exactly what I did, but replicate and, and, and cross-check. I think also with transparency is the important issue of peer review. One of the things we've kind of had a challenge with in the context of COVID-19 is almost peer review in the lay press. That's probably, you know, it's interesting, but it's a dangerous place to do peer review because it means that people may make decisions on information before it's fully baked. And so the importance of having multiple eyes on making, on understanding what is credible information is very important. And then practice. So I said experienced eyes. Experienced eyes become come because we've all had practice in doing something. And that means that we have had practice in understanding, for example, the methods that we are going to put in play for real-world data in the context of COVID-19. And that we have actually used them well enough that we know when they fall apart, because part of transparency is knowing the limitations of what you can and cannot do for different scenarios and then being aware of that. So I think that within this context of transparency, we need to show what we do, allow others to try it as well, look for experience peer review, and make sure that experience comes with practice. So then as as stewards of real-world data here at Coda, Mike, how can we practically do what Amy is you know, suggesting and recommending here? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I just want to come back to one thing Amy, Amy said, one quote. I actually wrote it down. I love the term deliberate agility. That is just such a great term that I'm going to use it when, when, certainly in, in Coda when I talk to our team because it's such a great term. So... You know, I, I think it can back to transparency and trust. We've been doing this for a number of years. We're much better at today than we were eight years ago. And the thing that I love about this, and I think that the, the thing that energizes the CODA team certainly, is we believe this is the future. And we're part of creating the future. And as you create the future, it's sometimes uncomfortable because a lot of this stuff has not been generally accepted or people are used to doing things a different way. And we had to do things a different way because we didn't have the data. We didn't have the ability to clean up the data. We didn't have the ability to do a number of things we, we can today with technology. So I think all of that, it portends that there has to be a level of transparency between 
the regulators and the private sector, all for the benefit of the patient. I, I agree with Amy completely. Peer review has to be the standard. And in, a, in an era where data becomes ubiquitous to some extent by the press, there is going to be judgment from the public sector, that the public at large, about and postulation about whether something may or may not work. But again, that comes down to rigor, and I'll come back to Amy's term, deliberate agility, as we go forward together. Yeah, I really love that term as well. So I think let's shift a little bit. We've talked directly about research on COVID, but there's also another aspect, which is the effect that COVID has had on research in other therapeutic areas, um, such as cancer. And I think that manifests itself in a number of different ways, whether it is about the clinical trials that have been delayed as a result of COVID, or if it's that you know, specific patient treatments um, have been delayed as hospitals really refocus their efforts and resources on COVID treatment. So firstly, Mike, in terms of capturing new elements and things that are changing in the real world, I know that we've been doing some work and thinking about, do we need to consider COVID as a comorbidity now? Do we need to capture, you know, kind of what was and and introduce a new reason for delay of treatment, uh, which is COVID. So how are we shaping, you know, how we are collecting data and the way that we shape our real-world data to reflect these new developments? Yeah, we've had a lot of discussions about this, both with the FDA and other folks, our partners. And unfortunately, you know, COVID-19 is probably a comorbidity and needs to be considered in a clinical trial study. And I think going forward, we're going to have to carefully think about that as we look at data from electronic health records and consider that in our data set. And Amy, how is this relevant for the FDA in terms of data that you're considering during this period? I'm going to divide this between, you know, certainly the importance of the data for clinical trials around COVID-19 therapies, but we're really, you know, kind of at this point delving into the topic of other clinical trials that are ongoing and how do we think about those clinical trials where patients on the trials might also get COVID. There's also trials that are ongoing that might be impacted as studies related to the overall pandemic and just how people have been managed. And so let me kind of like hit on those two things because I think the Oncology Center for Excellence in particular has um, been great stewards in thinking about these issues. Within the context of ongoing clinical trials and patients who may be on those trials or on trials in the future, the question as to whether or not having COVID itself as a covariate is one of the kind of, you know, one critical question. So that it may be that people with COVID-19 perform differently across time than, than others. And so we may need to consider that as either a stratification variable or a key piece of information, the baseline table or something else. But likely we are going to see, start to see a world where similar to has, does this person have diabetes is a question that needs to be collected. Another question that may need to be collected is, has this person had COVID-19 or do they have antibodies? Right. As, as an example, I don't know that for sure yet, but that's the kind of thing that we need to explore. Similarly, we need to understand if a person had had COVID-19, Maybe there may be late effects that we need to understand with respect to, to the population. The same as we worry about for a person who's had diabetes, do they have a risk of increased chance of renal concerns? 
maybe the person with COVID-19 has an increased chance with coagulopathy of concerns. We don't know that yet, but that may be the kind of information that needs to be added to our clinical trial setting. Also, we need to think about trials that are impacted by the pandemic. Gaps in data collection, because people couldn't come back to the clinic for visits. Or whether or not those trials ultimately were ongoing and then suddenly had a bolus of people who indeed themselves had COVID-19. And how do we need to both think about the filling in the data set, and maybe rural data has a place there, or data that's come from remote clinical visits, but then also how do we need to potentially amend those trials across time? These are questions that the Oncology Center for Excellence has really been focusing on, and they've been thinking a lot about how do they talk to manufacturers about this, how do they think about the right data sets to collect, and then also what are the statistical concerns and the regulatory concerns that may come with this over time. Absolutely. And I know we've definitely been thinking about, you know, is there a place for real world data in trying to alleviate some of these, you know, data gaps and, you know, challenges that there are to recruitment during this time for clinical trials. And so expanding on that point a little bit, you know, from from the FDA's perspective, do you think there is a place for real world data? And in what form might we see that? I think we've got a lot to learn. I think there's a lot, lot to be said for the role of real world data kind of now into the, in, into the future. One is we, we're going to need to learn whether or not there's a role for real world data and filling in data gaps, whether those are gaps in the, in the middle of the data set, so to speak, or gaps in the need for longitudinal monitoring that may or may not um, have been able to happen for, for patients on trials. So, so that's one area where I, I see there's a potential role for real world data. Another potential role for rural data is to start to supplement our understanding of potential therapies and how those therapies are performing now in the real world as patients get COVID-19. And, you know, I sort of think about a lot of approved oncology drugs and what do we now need to understand in terms of how those, how those drugs are performing. I think there's also the role of real world data within the context of clinical trials of helping us design better trials in the future. And so that's going to be a really important task because we are going to now need to plan future trials based on a lot of new knowledge that's happened in the last three months about the pandemic and about how healthcare has changed and how this may impact disease. And so there's going to be a lot of work there also to do on on the clinical trial design side. Yeah, I think that side is a really interesting um, aspect, right? I think we we never want to be designing clinical trials for a pandemic, right? It, it still generally is the exception. But I think there are a lot of things that we've learned from this extended disruption that could inform great design and improving our designs going forward, you know, whether it is considering using more uh, external comparators so you can run more single arm trials, or if it's thinking about how do you alleviate burden on the patient, right, in terms terms of what's required for participation. I think there's a lot of those aspects that we can learn and apply to the standard in terms of the future way that we think about this design. So maybe at a high level, you know, what is the FDA's role in shaping thinking and guidance around these higher level design decisions? You know, I think there's a lot of, we know that the FDA looks at all the specific protocols, but in general, from a high level, when you're thinking about do I consider an external comparator, right? What are the schemes that I, I think are even possible for this trial that I'm doing? You know, what is the role of the FDA in helping shaping the thinking around that? 
So, you know, I go back to some things we were talking about a few minutes ago as it relates to really trying to pressure test what's the role of real world data. Where, where does this fit? So FDA has been, I think, quite forward leaning and saying, we're going to work together across the community to understand what data are fit for purpose. What are the right analytic plans? And then what are the right use cases? And so if I think about FDA's role in shaping this story around use cases for where real world data has a role, that you know, I, I really anticipate that one of the areas of exploration is to understand how can real world data provide a confident benchmark? Whether or not that is for very rare scenarios where the only way to have a benchmark is to draw upon prior experience and historical data. That's one, and we have a number of examples of how therapies have been approved in those scenarios. Another is to, a question is to understand whether or not there is the opportunity to generate contemporaneous control data sets that ultimately can serve as real world controls for drugs on study now, maybe even in the sort of the, as phase two um, studies and having contemporaneous controls. But this is, this is a series of experiments right now. In part of my prior life, I spent a lot of time focused on this topic. And I can tell you that figuring out both the appropriate data sets and how to do the math is really hard. And so I think there's a lot of work that needs to go into figuring out what needs to be done and when can we confidently apply the methods. The other thing that I would mention, because I, I, I think it's important, is that, you know, FDA has multiple medical product centers. And so we have drugs and devices and biologics. And our devices center, CDRH, has done a lot of work in thinking about the role of real world control arms and real world control scenarios for the device setting. And I think it will be useful to watch what's going on there to also learn how does that, you know, sort of inform how both FDA thinks, but also the community thinks writ large and what's working and what's not. Absolutely. Well, we certainly look forward to continuing to working with you and the FDA on real world data and progressing our thinking in this space. And hopefully, you know, with the ultimate impact, of course, of the ultimate goal of having an impact on, on patient lives. So Amy, on behalf of everyone at CODA, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I hope our listeners enjoyed this conversation. I know I certainly did. And really just looking forward to continued collaborations with you in the future. Thank you guys for all that you do. Thanks, Amy. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using real world data, please visit us at CodaHealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.